This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Star Trek predicts the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi critique show, bring in other stuff too for the heck of it, and I need a better intro for this. My name is Gap, and I am joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! This week we watch Star Trek original series episode, Friday's Child. Is this Joe Friday's kid? We finally found out, figure out what happened there. This is apparently in reference to a old poem that I was only sort of familiar with, where children born on different days of the week have various attributes, but no one seems to be able to um, agree on which day is assigned to which thing. So it's basically, uh, you know, like, um, you know, what, what's your, your birth sign except for days of the week? Somewhat. Apparently they are they are taking this episode title from Friday's Child is Full of Woe, but in the poem that they link to specifically in the Wikipedia article for that, uh, Friday's child is loving and giving, and Wednesday's child is the one who is full of woe. Hmm. I'm guessing it's not like uh, uh, Lady Gaga's woe. Probably not. The only thing all of the poems seem to agree with is children born on the Sabbath day are Bonnie, Blythe, Good, and Gay. Cool. <laughs> there's, there's, there's some, some good stuff there. I hated it. Like, spoilers. I don't know. This episode was not very well put together, and I had to rearrange some things to make it make sense. A little bit. And it yeah, still it, doesn't. It's just sort of like, okay, we got some plot points here. We got to throw them together in some order, and there's some stuff. And then, and then they manipulate poor uh, you know, James Doohan, and, uh, but we'll get to that later. Yeah, it's I'll all mean, yeah. messy and weird and... <laughs> Yeah, it's, I'd say that it's it's not the worst we've run into, but it is kind of on the, the lower end as far as quality goes. Yep, which is unfortunate. We have a guest star this episode that people have heard of. They just don't give her anything to actually do. Uh-oh. Yes, our main guest star this week is Julie Newmar playing Ellen, who starred in My Living Doll and is also well known for playing Catwoman in the 1960s Batman TV show. Excellent. I also have several other people who were uh, somewhat known at the time. Uh, Michael Dante is playing Mob or Mab. He was a professional oh, basketball Mab. player. Which is Mab is just like the 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 the, the Celtic mythic uh, figure of the fairies and things like that. Maybe the names in this are just <laughs> weird and and awful. <laughs> it's original series Star Trek. It happens. <laughs> We have Ty Gay, or Tigay, I can't pronounce this first name, Andrews, playing Crass, who is the Klingon. He starred in two ABC cop shows. Oh, uh, is, that, is one of them Chips? Uh, no, I don't okay. think either of them was Chips. <laughs> he was in Chips too, but... <laughs> they may not have starred in that. Uh, you might be right. Yeah, I think he's uh, like a three-time person showing up there. Yes. And the final main person is Ben Gage playing Akar. Akar! I wish he spent more time in the episode because every time they have to say that dumb name. 
yeah, it's, you know, sometimes we have to find the little joys in, the, in this sort of thing here. So <laughs> I can get behind that. Crass the, the, the Klingon there. They only refer to him as the Klingon throughout the episode. So if we only call him the Klingon later on, that's what's up. Yeah, I know his name because of the transcript. Also, apparently, a thunderstorm just happened here, so there may be lightning noises. Excellent. It's going to put us in the mood. All right, maybe they'll jump in, I suppose, before a tornado or something happens here. We open with McCoy briefing the command staff on a race called the Capellans, a warrior culture who he spent time with a few years before. Yeah, is this uh, Capellans as in, like, the Star Capella, uh, Alpha Reggae? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Capella. Ah, that's where the name comes from. <laughs> <laughs> Capellans had no use for him as a doctor because they don't believe in medication, thinking that the weak should die. Hmm. These guys don't seem like they're very friendly, uh, but maybe we could prove wrong by their... Uh demonstration at their behavior in the episode yes <laughs> their principal <laughs> fighting technique is a three-bladed throwing weapon called a cliget so it's like a shuriken but smaller it's like bigger. a mix between a shuriken and a uh, chakram maybe we could just call it the glaive <laughs> yeah it's kind of like that it's it's like a star glaive <laughs> they, they to self note to self add crawl to the list of episodes i want to cover anyway <laughs> <laughs> They also use swords and knives, but have no ballistic weaponry. The Enterprise needs to negotiate mining rights for a rare and valuable mineral that seems to be quite common on this particular planet. It's not Delithium this time. We're doing mining rights again. Yep. Again. <laughs> I seem to do this a lot. Kirk, McCoy, Spock, and a security officer beam down, where they are greeted by a group of Capellans, as well as a Klingon named Crass. <laughs> and we're all disappointed that uh, these locals aren't all singing at this point. The sight of a Klingon startles the security officer who goes for his weapon, causing the Capellans to kill him instantly with one of their Kligats. Well, I guess this is going to be uh, the end of our diplomatic mission here. Um, everyone either run away or start fighting. Yep. Also, we're two paragraphs in and I'm already sick of reading these stupid name things. <laughs> Turns out that Crass is also there to negotiate mining rights. Both he and the Enterprise crew have to give up their weapons and communicators and are now guests of the Capellan leader. Well, I guess uh, without weapons, we're not going to be a threat anymore, so they're not going to kill any more dudes, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Kirk spends a bit of time worrying that if a Klingon is down on the planet, there may be a Klingon ship in orbit ready to threaten the Enterprise. And sure enough, the Enterprise detects a ship just on the edge of sensor range, but it is doing nothing at this point. Hmm, we're being shadowed. They are brought into a waiting tent where a woman enters, offers to give Kirk food or something. McCoy warns him not to interact with her, and if he does, then her closest male relative will try to kill him. A man enters and is disappointed that he does not get to kill him, and this was basically pointless. So what you're saying is they have a a social norm that's basically to get people to be baited into a fight to the death for no reason? Seems to be. McCoy makes an offhand point that they consider fighting more pleasurable than love. Hmm. Well, um, I hope they, since everything seems to be a fight to the death, they need to like 
get busy a lot, but I don't see any kids around. Not are these children? Yes. <laughs> Maybe the Capellans are born uh, fully grown somehow. Later on, they meet the Capellan leader, Akar. Spelled Akar. with three A's. Yes. <laughs> he likes the Federation, but his rival, Mob, <laughs> convinces him that the Federation is too different and they have much more in common with the Klingons. At this point, we also meet Ellen, Akar's pregnant wife. Anyway, so we got so so we got two guys with kind of ridiculous names, uh, Akar and uh, Mob. But Ellen is just Ellen. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's, it's spelled with three E's. <laughs> oh, okay, that's, that's something, I guess. <laughs> I guess it would be Ellen. Come on, Ellen. Maybe. Yes. Come on, Ellen. <laughs> We got singing here somewhere. So <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Akar takes a bit of time to consider the trade agreements and is threatened briefly by Mab before the party leaves. We immediately cut to a big fight. The series seems to have suddenly developed a habit of doing this. In media res, violence everywhere. Mob seizes power from Akar. Kirk and Cass fight with Kirk winning, but Mob interrupts, announcing that Akar is dead and now Mob is in charge. And he may or may not deal with the Klingons as he agreed previously, but he's now power hungry and in charge. Cool. Um, I hope this power doesn't go to your head, guy. Ellen is brought in, apparently because she's carrying the child of the previous leader. She has to be condemned to die under their laws. Also, they are really mean to her and trip her and she burns her hand on a brazier in the middle of the room. These guys seem like jerks, I think. Yep. She's pretty ready to accept her fate under the law, but Kirk pulls her away, saving her and also touching another man's wife, both of which are against their local laws, so now he must die. Wait, so she's going to be murdered and because he touched her, he has to die too? Yes. This doesn't make any damn sense. <laughs> nope. Also, what about the guy who tripped her? <laughs> Meanwhile, the Enterprise has detected a Federation distress signal, and since they cannot contact Captain Kirk because he gave up his communicator, Scotty decides that they have no choice but to leave orbit to investigate the distress signal, leaving the party alone on the planet. Now, it's important to note that the name of the uh, the cargo ship that's apparently giving the distress signal is the, the Deidre, which is also uh, James Doohan's uh, daughter's name. Oh, so so okay. clear. So clearly, the writers are messing with James Doohan in order to get the character to do things. <laughs> That's why Scotty's not making good decisions this episode. Exactly, he's manipulated into it. Oh no! Kirk and the crew are imprisoned with Ellen. McCoy decides that he's going to take a look at Ellen's burned hand. Kirk and Spock are very into this idea. I guess they're hatching a clever plan. Yes. Look over there at the the the, guy, the doctor person who touched the lady. Isn't that terrible? Yes, Ellen protests at being touched by McCoy, which distracts the guards, letting Kirk and Spock easily knock them out. Ellen decides that she would rather leave with them than sit around and wait to be executed, so they all run away. Finally, we found somebody on this planet who's not like completely insane. Hmm. So far, she does she does not have very many lines, and all of them are like two words and make her sound really stupid. Man, we don't we can't get any good example of good people on this planet, can we? 
Crass is further upset at Mab for not honoring their original agreement, but Mab is in charge now and he's going to do what he wants, including kicking the Klingon's weapons. Well, um, I guess this whole uh, you know regime change thing worked out for you, Mr. Crass guy. <laughs> yeah, that's like you shouldn't maybe instigate rebellions to get your way because power-hungry people aren't reliable. Yep, <laughs> but more on that later. The Enterprise has arrived at the coordinates given by the distress signal, but there is nothing there, and they begin a search pattern. That's all. <laughs> it's a lot of very brief Enterprise cutaways this episode. <laughs> Suddenly we're here, and then back. Then here, then back. Kirk, McCoy, Spock, and Elaine are a good way from the encampment near some rocky cliffs that narrow into a canyon. McCoy tries to examine Elaine, but she does not want to be touched and slaps him for randomly grabbing at her. He gets angry and also slaps her, which I guess lets her know that he's serious and he proceeds with his examination. So this is like Capella flirting, I guess. Apparently, this is also not good. Like no, yeah. no doctor should do this ever. Yeah, but McCoy, um, you're gonna have to turn that medical license here. Oh, you already left it, lost it because of all that drinking. Well, hmm. Kirk, could you just put him in the brig or something? I don't I, Just get, get him off the planet. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I guess this is like played off as humorous or something. I hate it. Yeah. He announces that her pregnancy is going to come any time now, and she is impressed by this because even their midwives and whatnot can't tell when a baby's going to be born, I guess. Hmm. Um, have we Cause... seen any of the midwives here at all? Not so far. Okay. That, 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 that might be why. <laughs> they don't exist. And then she starts to act all weird about McCoy. Spock spots a group of Capellans coming their way, and they decide to use their communicators that they got back off screen. We were told about in the captain's log, but you know, yeah. they just showed up with them. <laughs> Managed to find our communicators, but not our weapons for some reason. Hmm, weird. They're going to use these communicators that they magically have to create a magical vibration that will magically collapse the cliffside. Good, 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 good vibrations. They set up the rock slide, and it kills several of the Capellans pursuing them, but Mab and Crass survive, as well as several other guards. But now they must go around this very small rock slide that would not have impeded them in any way, shape, or form. It should be noted that the Capellans are sort of presented as these kind of giant folks. They're like given platform shoes and long things that cover their feet. So you can't tell. But uh, so they're supposed to be like giant physically imposing people. And they're like, oh, we found some rocks. Oh, I guess we can't move them. Yeah, the, the pile of rocks looks to be about eight feet tall. You could climb that easy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Just reach up and, and pull yourself up, guy. <laughs> This also gives Crass the opportunity to grab a phaser that one of the Capellan guards had. Oh no, the Klingon might try to laser somebody. The crew keep moving, but Ellen is slow because she's not climbing the rocks very well and she'll only let McCoy touch her. No, McCoy, go and be an escalator. Yes. Uh, I'm a doctor, not an escalator. I still know what those are for some reason. <laughs> Scotty has used his ultimate power of basic competence to deduce that there is no debris or ship or anything, so the distress signal they were chasing was probably a ruse to get them away from the planet. But he's going to stick around just to be sure, and so the episode can last another 15 minutes. 
Yep. <laughs> Otherwise, it'd be over so much sooner. The crew back on the planet have found themselves a cave. McCoy and Ellen stay inside because she has gone into labor, while Kirk and Spock go outside and make some very janky-looking bows and arrows. Yeah, I, I guess their uh, Boy Scout training is paying off, I guess? Yes. Looks about Boy Scout quality. Yeah. Maybe we're being too rough on the Boy Scouts, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. They should be able to do better work than that. The child is born, and Elaine has decided that for some reason it's McCoy's kid. Because that's how it works, I guess, now. Yep. He slapped her, so now it's his baby. So does that whole she-has-to-be-put-to-death thing not work now? I don't know. I guess still or something no no one knows no one knew in the first place yeah pick it up the rules as they go along the enterprise has now decided that it's time to head back to the planet but there is suddenly another distress call from a federation ship scotty decides to ignore it because it's obviously another ruse and he says fool me once shame on me fool me twice fiddle dd or some such <laughs> uh, and uh, Chekhov uh, has uh, russia take credit for the saying yes again (laughs) ellen knocks out mccoy with a rock and runs away okay (laughs) yep Uh, i think you should also be pointed out mccoy was kind of sleepy so she probably could have just waited a few minutes he'd fall asleep (laughs) yeah she probably could have just left the enterprise on the way back encounters a klingon ship and they prepare to fight it oh no uh, we're gonna the enterprise is gonna be heavily damaged and they're gonna be not be able to beam people down or up or something like that because everyone's half dead on the Enterprise. And the Klingons are maybe de- defeated, and there maybe the, there's gonna be this big chase scene. And there's gonna be you know fi- firing of phasers and proton torpedoes, and there's gonna be a tricky gambit. And they're gonna go into a, a nebula perhaps and and chase around, but the, the, the someone's gonna realize the Klingons are thinking two dimensionally. Wait a moment. As far as we know, but we cut back to. Mab and Crass and the other people who are still there trying to kill the Enterprise crew. Ellen runs up, lying to tell them that the child is dead and that she killed the crew. I guess this is supposed to be some sort of ruse to get them to leave, but it's very unclear. I guess uh, since she now has the hots, I guess, for McCoy, she wants them to be able to live. And yeah, so I guess Uh, she's going to be self-sacrificing somewhat. Cass does not believe this, but not trusting Elaine as the former wife of the leader bothers Mob as a breach of honor. So wait, so you want her dead? Also, this you have to keep her, you know, you to treat her word as legit, even though she has good reason to lie. Because okay. she wouldn't lie, even though she's lying. Yes. <laughs> but Cass runs up the hill, letting Kirk shoot him in the knee. Good on you, Kirk. This I think a there's jerk. a Skyrim joke here. <laughs> Gotta go become a guard now, Kras. Sorry. <laughs> Kirk and Spock proceed to take out a few more guards with their bows and arrows. Kras takes cover and threatens to kill all of the Capellans with his phaser. Mab, for some reason, decides that now he's going to free Ellen and starts just walking slowly towards Kras. Kras kills him before he can get anywhere, but this puts him out of position and lets one of the others kill him with one of their Kilgats. Yep. Kligats, whatever it is. I'm tired of names. <laughs> the, the three thingies. Yes. Just then, a group from the Enterprise arrives, phasers drawn. I guess they beat the Klingon starship off screen somewhere. 
Yep, that whole uh, action scene there that I was describing before, completely gone off screen, you know. Miss some exciting stuff, probably. McCoy brings out the baby, Spock is confused by baby talk, and everything's good now. So we, we can uh, leave this planet behind and, and then their, and their weird behaviors and just call it good. Back in the ship, we learn that Elaine, acting as the regent for the new leader, has approved their mining rights, and also she named the kid Leonard James Akar. Which is funny. Yeah. The end. Man, what even with this episode? I don't know. <laughs> I don't. It's hard to get. Uh, there's like every every misstep they could have done, they did, and then more. Yeah. So. There's there's some stuff we can unpack here. It's some it's kind of just really lame. Uh, where, do, you, do you have any preference for where we want to start on this one? <laughs> well, I guess we should get the very obvious out of the way that this is another double Orientalist episode. Yeah, the uh, Capellans are coded quite uh, Mongolian. Yes, uh, you know uh, this is sort of this uh, you know certain you know, accents to the dress. Their 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 attitudes and you know honor and blood and things like that and and various sort of very possessiveness of the the the, the, the women in their society is is a little, little absurd. It's very uh, you know sort of you know vibing to those old terrible stereotypes. Yes, they also have like kind of very sort of Mongolian looking tents for everything and razors. They don't have any horses. Uh, the horses would be too expensive, though. You know. Yeah, probably. And their throwing weapons are actually kind of uh, Sikh. And then you got the Klingons, which we've talked about a lot before. So that's not getting any better. Yeah, well, and I guess that we we focus much less on the Klingon, other than he's there and causing mischief, and really, not, we don't really learn anything new about them. Other than that, they're they are still an adversary. So, there's a particular crappy trope with this kind of military-ish, very we're gonna kill everyone and only the strong should survive culture that didn't exactly ever exist, but people love it for some reason. It's. It, it it speaks to the uh, sort of the vibe of uh, you know sort of your your barely man sort of you know this is a society where you know uh, only the strong survive and thus I will be the leader of the society sort of thing and it's uh, a bit of a, uh, a fantasy a power trip a uh, power fantasy as you were uh, as far as you know sort of thinking about it, it's like well if if I live to the society uh, you know I, you know everything will just work out because I I'm I'm awesome and all that fun stuff. But it sort of ignores all the kind of obvious facts that it would fall apart pretty easily. <laughs> yes. Well, there's a particular myth around this with sort of quote-unquote primitive cultures that they would have had these ideas then, and a lot of them have stuck around, that there's this whole ancient myth that that before modern society and all of our medicine and whatnot people with injuries and sicknesses and whatnot would be such a burden on society that you have to just let them die yeah sort of a ultimate survival of the fittest but not white quite (laughs) and in fact it was only yesterday that i was listening to another another freaking 
uh, argument on a radio show that that humans have now removed ourselves from evolution because medicine is letting so many people live who would not have lived before medicine. It's not quite how it works, guys. No, it's not how it works at all. <laughs> it's it's uh, you know it's a super misreading of what all this sort sort of is, and it's okay. So you want in your minds like we want to have a uh, our us as people to be a a a, a collection of beings that are subject to some you know notion of survival of the fittest and we are going to do this through some you know, uh, through, through some directed means uh and that directed means is going to select for these particular traits etc cetera, etc cetera. And, and as they sort of uh you know try to make this argument for this is how things should be they are sort of intentionally leaving out certain aspects of how the world works that kind of make all their their, their 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 structures here sort of fall apart. And it's like, okay, you're talking about people who get, uh, get sick. Now, if someone gets sick and dies well after they've, say, had a bunch of kids, do you have to murder the kids too? Because this person died. They, they got sick. They died. They're obviously not fit to exist anymore. What? what? Doesn't that mean all their, their, their progeny are, are now just as you know terrible? They must be just, uh, purged as well? No, that doesn't make any Sam sense. <laughs> well, the only thing that you ever do when you're talking about these evolutionary things are you, you've changed the selection pressures. Exactly. So evolution is not some sort of march towards progress. It is just a thing that happens. It's, a, it's like a filter. You, you can, uh, you, it's, it's, it's set up to chemically pull out certain things. If you're like talking about like something you're like putting, you know, you know some sort of uh, mucky water in, and it's like, okay, well, this this filter only removes, say, iron, and so all this chlorine is still there, all the salt is still there, all this random bits of bacteria are also still in there, and that's okay because we've designed our filter like that. Now, even going back to just the kind of historical idea of, you know, the weak must not survive, no interest in medication. Uh, there's there's lots of anthropological evidence of ancient cultures with people who were you know buried treated with with honorable burials and whatever you know, cultures they lived in who had crippling disabilities and or showed signs of surviving very bad illnesses that they would not have been able to survive without help from their community so this idea that, you know, in whatever primitive cultures or some such, the weak would just be killed or let die is just, you know, racist nonsense, basically. Yes. It's an, it's an argument that's being constructed in order to allow someone to design a filter that they have a preference for, not necessarily anything actually based in reality. Now, the culture that people keep coming back to with this idea... And what I think a lot of these weird quasi-military-ish cultures seem to be based on is the kind of myth of the Spartans. How did I know you were going to say that? <laughs> yeah, I've heard a lot of things talk, you know, said about Sparta specifically, and some of it's completely made up, some of it's actually true, and all of it sounds terrible no matter how you sort of cut it. Yeah. But even if you take it at face value, 
the there's this idea the only thing that really ties in so much is this idea that they would leave kind of newborns out overnight to see if they would live or at least examine them and kill off ones with disabilities uh which one that wouldn't work very well because the disabilities that you can visually see when a baby is born are very slim especially with that level of medical technology well it has uh, all the limbs um it's not purple um I guess it's going to probably live. And I haven't found any particular, like, you know, this was definitely a thing that happened or this was a hypocritical story. There's also been a lot of writing about how the Spartans were a sort of military-based culture that sold themselves as the strongest warriors around because they were kind of a mercenary society. So having a myth that you killed off anyone weak in your society doesn't do you any harm as your sellability as a traveling mercenary force. Yeah, so, you know, none of our people are weak at the least. If they were, they'd be dead already. So hire us and you'll get the best. And even in something like that, you had a king, you had a hierarchical ruling class structure. Uh, attacking your fellow, like, Spartans was frowned upon and punishable was not a like you know everyone every person for themselves just kill each other until society breaks down and the last one standing gets to be the leader yeah there is a a a order that was being enforced by you know because that's what most you know civil societies tend to do uh you know there there are going to be cops on the street uh of some sort and uh sparta's no exception so this is basically this weird myth thing that people just like because it's the it's kind of the same thing that we get nowadays with the post-apocalyptic fiction it's just this this like i am strong and big and i have this power fantasy and if i was in this society i'd be in charge or i could survive or all that junk (laughs) the problem is most of us would die of radiation poison well before that (laughs) yeah so that's out of the way yeah. <laughs> that's my big beef with these kinds of episodes in all genres of science fiction. They're just racist junk yeah. that got filtered in. They aren't even using it to examine anything interesting. It's just, here's a weird military culture where they like hurting each other. That's that's weird, right? Well, I, it does make for interesting sort of parallels uh, to, to the other thing I think we should probably talk about. The Cold War. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so obviously, the situation here is very much a parallel of uh, various sort of you know uh, conflicts, alliances, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, various dipl- diplomatic incidents, you could say, as far as interactions in the real world between the United States and the Soviet Union. That what there would be a country is either strategic location uh, or with a, a certain resource, uh, one or, or both. Uh, uh, powers had a uh, intense interest in that they would go in and uh, try to figure out a way to get that country on their side and uh, the and often enough you know this would be independent of how stable or coherent the government of that country was uh, as far, uh, as well as you know there's plenty of instances of very unreliable uh uh, you know, uh, you know, leadership that they they find themselves working with that worked sometimes. Other times, it ended up kind of biting them in the ass. Um, so uh, there's many a many an example in the real world. If you uh, should I go over a few, uh, Gepwin? 
Sure. I mean, you do have this exact thing in a lot of places. Like, you get one group coming in going, hey, this person who wants to be leader is kind of more amenable to our things. Maybe we should give them some weapons and stuff and see what happens. Just helping out some freedom fighters. That's all. If you, if you manage to overthrow your uh, your king or parliament or uh, whatever you got up there, uh, you know, just remember who got you your weapons. Wink. So um, so I, I think uh, the the most I guess obvious one that people are talking about is the the thing I sort of referenced in the uh, the intro there of uh, Afghanistan specifically, uh, where the Soviet Union decided to go into Afghanistan. Uh, and they're like, well, we're just going to kind of take over. And the locals are like, hmm, we don't much like that. And the U.S. is like, yeah, having Soviets kind of here is getting them in the better position as far as, like, actual physical locations. So maybe we'll go f- fund some of the opposition, get them some training. Uh, what what are these guys anyway? They're oh, some sort of Al-Qaeda, you say? Hmm. Well, I'm sure there'll be no problem in the future. We'll be on our side forever, right? That works out. I think they're still valued allies. Yep. After all this time and, you know, all that recent history we've had here in the last 20 years. Um, but, you know, there's other instances, uh, of course. Uh, speaking of uh, other Middle East cu- countries, we could just move a little bit further west. Uh, there's that, uh, you know, uh, uh, there's some sort of uh, government in Iran, I think it was in the, the 50s, was it, uh, that uh, didn't much... Uh, yeah, it didn't have too much interest in uh, being uh, on board of the U.S. here. But, um, you know, the U.S. is like, mm, now nah, we're going to get you replaced and get you a nice little guy to take over for you for a while. And uh, that worked out just well. And, uh, do you remember what happened with that, uh, Gepwin? Is that that thing where a sitting president cre- committed treason? Hmm, perhaps. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, the, 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 if you recall in Iran, the the uh, the the U.S. government that that was, you know, the the that the friendly the government the government that was friendly to the U.S. was eventually taken out by uh, in uh, 1979 by some sort of Islamic revolutionary organization. I forget the name of it off the top of my head right now. Uh, I should have written this down in my notes. But uh, they uh, so uh, the Iran stopped being so friendly to the U.S. And uh, for a while, it was sort of just sort of its its own thing and has more recently been much more interested in uh, being friends with Russia and things like that. So that, that, that turned out just swell, didn't it? Well, this is just a thing superpowers have been doing since our... This is like the, the post-imperial era yes. of the quiet <laughs> empires. Yes, where it's... We're not going to run your country directly. We're going to uh, work closely with your leadership... And hope that the leadership you have is ones that we installed and not the ones that were installed by the other side. Um, should I keep going? I, I, I keep going from country to country that share land borders here for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you want. We don't have a lot else to talk about, and I think we've got 20 minutes to fill. But <laughs> uh, There's a, a story that's maybe a little uncertain about some of the details, but uh, I think it was back in the 50s the, in, the, in Iraq. There was uh, the U.S. Uh, the CIA was maybe working with some guy. The the the, the first name was Saddam, I think it was. Uh, and uh, he, uh, Saddam like went, you know, went and tried to assassinate the leader of uh, uh, the, the, you know, I think it was a, a reigning dictator in Iraq at the time. Uh, and it didn't work. But he fled the country, and there is so much hoopla about it that his uh, his political organization, the Baathist Party, 
got a lot of uh, you know uh, uh, notoriety back home, which helped them in their later activities to eventually take over the country uh, and uh, you know and and generally be uh, kind of assholes to everybody. But uh, the the, the uh, you know that Saddam guy came back and was kind of friendly to the U.S. In fact, that you know speaking of Iran, uh, they're like, yeah, well, Iran's kind of betrayed us here. Um, yeah, we're cool with you just getting a little bit of a fight with you with them to do a little proxy war, whatever you know. Um, and also, you can keep the, the oil funding come here. Oh, you're attacking our other ally. Oh, that's crap. Hmm. Well, you shouldn't have invaded our uh, Kuwait now, so now you're on the bad boy list. So, uh, so yeah, um, yeah, we're gonna do that. So, sorry. Hmm. We've talked about this before <laughs> with the colonialism episodes, and they do seem to always now follow a very similar pattern of them coming in to get mining rights or do mining or something mining must have just been an easy stand-in i suppose they thought that uh, oil was unrealistic yeah we're going to extract your resources uh buckled folks space oil well to a certain degree you know oil you know you know petrochemicals might still be very needed in the in the, in the distant future it'd just be you know not necessarily for fuel oils but like for like plastics or something probably yeah but I'm not a chemist, so I uh, don't quote me on that. If there's the plastic uh, mines of the yes. far future. <laughs> if there's better options out there that, that I'm unaware of, so you know, you know, put them in the comments. So and tell me what's up. Well, you'd hope that someone would have moved to bioplastics by now. Some better kind of bioplastic. Yeah, so some alternatives, so we don't have to mess with all this stuff anymore. Anyway, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it's, it's it's very much you know the, we got a, a a plot point that's resource extraction. And we have to put up with some locals that are ridiculous in some fashion. And that ends up driving the entire plot of the episode. And to a certain degree, if there was a, a certain, say, I don't know, prime directive that would, say, discourage this sort of thing, especially when you're dealing with people that don't seem to be warp capable at all, maybe this whole plot would kind of fall apart. <laughs> Yeah, an interesting thing with the McCoy bit, because they they made him kind of a kind of a missionary earlier on, which is an interesting thing they haven't really touched on before. Yeah, they they had you know made clear at the beginning yeah that he had been on this planet before for something else, and that's how he learned all the various random cultural mores that only come up when, you know almost after the fact. Yeah, and he was there to like give them medicine and things uh there's there's this fairly interesting thing that i i was kept thinking about with this episode and there's been a couple others with this similar theme where the people on the planet always say something to the effect of you're going to destroy our culture with your culture and we're supposed to go oh they're just paranoid about this. The Federation culture is obviously superior to your culture, and you not wanting to learn their obviously superior ways makes you horrible and crazy, and we should hate you for that. Oh, you're just backwards primitives. Oh, I, I, I. Yeah, we get a lot of this, and it's bothering me more and more the further into this series we get. We haven't even hit the, the frickin' Native American episodes yet. Hmm. The, 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 the sad thing about that is... That, that the Native American weirdness still continues, like in the Voyager era too. Oh yeah, it's worse there. <laughs> but this idea of the primitive culture is 
a deeply seated imperialist idea that was used a lot by uh, early explorers and missionaries in particular. Missionaries, and is what kind of McCoy was doing, honestly, is the first wave of the um, of the colonializing forces. You'd send out your missionaries for their missionary work to enlighten the heathens of other lands and teach them the value of wearing clothes and not having fun. And then your you know military force would show up later once they're all Christianized. It's like, well, we've got enough uh, people that uh, aren't going to immediately reject us uh, so we can uh, you know, have at least a few footholds in here. And uh, we can, uh, and anyone who doesn't fall in line once we get there, well, we can just murder them. Yeah, we have some very odd ideas about this sort of missionary thing. There was even a story very recently, a year or two ago, where a modern missionary was trying to make contact with some people who live on an on a like weirdly undisturbed island. They're one of the yeah, the yeah, last kind of uncontacted. It's in uh, Southeast Asia, right? Yes, I think it's. A, I believe so. Yes, it's like um, in Indonesia, Malaysia sort of area, right? And uh, they and uh, they, yeah, there there was some uh, some death involved, right? Well, this person tried to go once and was rebuffed by them throwing weapons at him, and then he came back and this time was actually killed. And there was this weird debate about whether or not he had the right to go to this island that has not been contacted and has no interest in being contacted by what we would think of as you know the modern world in heavy air quotes so so this guy so the question is this guy is it okay for him to basically go into these people's house and tell them what to do or not and we do have a vet we've got a very long history there was a lot of you know philosophical arguments about this in the in the 15 through 1900s that's a long time more that the other cultures just don't have a concept of borders or land ownership or land rights and uh, therefore you're allowed to go in there and do whatever and also that missionary work is this you know special higher calling sort of thing that exempts you from these moral questions of invading someone else's territory and deciding that you need to spread your culture to theirs so there is one thing i i, I tend to think about when you know this this you know the european notions like oh all countries have borders and if they don't they're not real countries sort of thing comes up is that even in Europe that was kind of not a thing that they uh, yeah, that the, you know, it's like okay so this is quote France and it's more these are the titles that are under the crown of France and these are maybe associated with certain you know bits of territory or whatever but the, that what that what what's that unification of, of the nation was was very very loose there wasn't a solid, this is a negotiated border and we've drawn the line on the map. It's more of a, well, this is who the this person swears fealty to. And if that changes for various reasons, say that person ends up becoming a king themselves, then things could happen. Things can get kind of weird and all that fun stuff. And maybe we'll have a hundred years war about it or something. 
But uh, well, yeah. you've gotten to this. This all comes out of the old European feudal land system, where one you know the king technically controlled a massive amount of land, and then that land was divvied up between his various trusted peoples and nobles all the way down. But yeah, it wasn't there. Was the, you you couldn't really move another army or something in there if you tried to claim territory they would have a problem with it the idea of kind of borders as we think of them now didn't really enter into the equation until quite recently like the the late 18 or 1900s i think it was a little earlier than that but they were like very very loose yeah yeah so before uh kind of world war one sort of era you just moved you could just move between wherever the borders were even at that time were much more about like you've crossed into this area where this set of laws apply it's it's, it's less of a you know self-contained unit of territory and more of a, a you know a just a, a rule change yeah it was exactly as you said you know that you have to now worry about this person having say over you if you this this territory as opposed to the other person and before that territory in sort of a colonial imperial sense was about resource control so it it didn't matter who went into or out of your particular territory as long as everything in that territory generated revenue for the sovereign nation and and sometimes people were keen on moving people from one place to another but it's a whole other thing but this whole colonialist thing is basically this whole based on an idea that that certain cultures don't have the rights to where they live and it's very heavily coded in this episode with this sort of tent city that they have set up here you'll notice that they don't have any permanent dwellings because obviously these people move about and so they're they are using the land but they do not control the land and thus we can have our mining operation well, they aren't really. They're they're living on the land. They're not, you know, they're using the land, but they're not making the land productive. Was the was the colloquial phrase because they are just living there. They probably have some kind of farming or something, but we don't see it. But they don't have industrialization. They aren't mining the resources that the Federation or the Klingons need. So their concerns are less important. They, they they farm uh, murder, I guess. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> that that would make as much sense as the rest that's being presented here. But apparently, we're not supposed to think about it very much because now there's a literal baby in charge. Yep, who's not gonna last long in the murder fights. Nope. <laughs> there was just a coup the other day. You know, I don't think that kid's gonna put up too much of a fight when someone else gets in their head that they should be in charge. But it's fine now. Because the government that the Federation likes is in power and everything's great forever once that happens. There'll never be any uh, uh, upset or change of power or anything at all. And there's not going to be another coup. There's not going to be Klingons coming in here and, you know, it's, you know, you know with another ship saying, hey, do you really want to be run by a baby and lady that you tried to murder the other day? I don't think that seems like a good idea to you. These, these, we can murder anyone to take over societies are very weirdly presented. I mean, I guess, like, if it was just a coup, people did murder kings and stuff before, but they presented it as a survival of the fittest type of, type of everyone fights each other all the time thing, not just a random coup. Yeah, so, so this would be the standard operating procedure on this planet for what they're presenting to us. 
And so that just seems like a terrible system, and it would be unsustainable because eventually everyone would end up dead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right, that's all I had. Yes. <laughs> and then some. Yeah. I think that's I think that's really all there is to this episode. Uh, I guess we could tr- try to talk about the absurdity of the, the some of the, the rules, but I don't really feel like it because they don't matter. <laughs> we've we've managed to milk more out of this episode than I thought we would, so I think it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show. Hey everybody, welcome to the game show portion of the show. We have tallied up all the various points, the various people that were in our today's episode, and we have some prizes to hand out. Our first award is the Cold War Strategy Award, which goes to Kirk and Crass, aka the Klingon, for their attempts to get to the planet of the super alpha people on board with their sides, probably to their own uh, detriment. And, but who their own detriment means either Crass, Kirk, or the Cabellans, it's kind of all of them, honestly. What do they win, Gepwin? Kirk and Crass win those aliens from the Arena episode, because where are they when you need them? <laughs> Come on, give us some more Gorns, eh? <laughs> Our second award is the, the What Prime Directive Award. It goes to Starfleet Command for sending the Enterprise to make deals with the obviously pre-warp civilization that may very well pull them into a larger... Uh, uh, interplanetary conflict that could get everybody on the planet killed, if there's any left by that point. Uh, what do they win, Gepwin? They win the modern superpower reward. Our ideals are our ideals, and we live by them unflinchingly until we need resources from somewhere, then never mind. Hmm. This seems a little hypocritical, but okay. Ho-ho! <laughs> our third award is the Unsustainable Murder Cult Award, which goes to the compellents because... Pretty soon, they'll have murdered all each other, and there won't be any left. So yeah, they're a little quick to overreact, they got ridiculous rules, and they got this freaking revolution thing going on. I think they're all going to be dead pretty soon. What do they win, Gepwin? Well, the Capellans don't win anything, because they're all going to die. But the Federation wins, so you should have just waited two weeks. Hmm, that's a very good point. I guess we'll uh, have another episode to come back to this empty planet and just start mining then. Ho-ho! Our final award is the Dr. Love Award, which goes to McCoy for accidentally, I guess, seducing Aline or something, just by kind of doing his normal job and also being an asshole by slapping her around. What does he win, Gepwin? McCoy wins getting his malpractice insurance revoked, because between this, the drinking, the illegal experiments, the general lack of ethics, I'm pretty sure the Federation just doesn't know what he's doing because he's too far out. Yeah, I think they need a new Shep's doctor. Uh, or maybe they should replace him with some sort of, uh, I don't know, hologram, perhaps. That might help. It's like they could replace him with someone else for one season who no one likes and then bring him back and they'll seem better. Hmm. That is, that's a good point. Um, oh, uh, some, some sort of uh, elderly lady, perhaps? Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> Anywho, that's all I got for awards today. <laughs> Thank you for all our contestants who managed to live. One of you left, and you're in charge. Good job. I think it's probably going to be the uh, the baby, because they forgot yes. it existed. <laughs> and thank you all for joining us on this, the galaxy's favorite game show. Man, it's kind of hard to maintain that voice when I'm laughing so much. <laughs>
Oh my god. I, I, I remember next week's episode. It's one of the ones I saw years ago, and I don't think it's as bad, even though the resolution is still stupid. Hmm. I, 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 I vaguely remember some of this, but I also think... I don't remember what the resolution was, but I remember it not being satisfactory. Then again, kind of yeah. any episode where there's this is the, <laughs> the basic premise, you're going to run into that. Yes, next week is the standard, the first, I guess, of the standard Star Trek We All Are Aging Really Fast episodes. Oh no, we're old people and that's terrible. Yeah. It's called The Deadly Years. Dun, dun, dun. The Enterprise goes to some planet where people age a lot and die of old age well which they've done in this they've done in next gen i think they did it in voyager um i watched an episode of farscape where they do that yeah yeah they did it there (laughs) they did it in stargate yep Uh, the one planet Uh, with the the nanites right yeah 100 days that one was much better oh yeah actually was was someone's struggle with their impending morale mortality that was a good episode it, it was able to sort of uh, stretch it out but i think we're, we're, we're pre talking about the stuff that's better than the next episode well beforehand <laughs> yeah but i don't i'm kind of curious i should do a little bit of research before because i want to know where this how old this trope is mm-hmm. that's a good point hmm. old Aha. Uh-huh. Good to make a bunch of old puns. Well, I'll I'll try to you know keep myself from uh, making me you know you know wearing those out. Uh, but we'll we'll have to see. But we'll see how we do on that, and hopefully get a better episode for everyone next week on Watches of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, get off my lawn, darn kids. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>